0: So, uh, I was setting up this morning for the 915 service, and I was up in the the sound desk just getting the PowerPoint ready, and one of the members of the 915 said, So, it's Advent, is that what you're speaking on today? What's your theme today? And so I had to own up and say, Well, today's theme, the title is Five Dodgy Women and the Men Who Loved Them. (laughs) She looked at me rather suspiciously going, doesn't sound very Adventy, does it? And I said, well, maybe. So let's just wait and see. We're going to be looking at five dodgy women and the men who loved them. I don't know if you've seen this program, Who Do You Think You Are? It's really popular. But people, these celebrities looking into, um, looking into their background, Peter, would you mind sorting that for us? Thank you. Looking into their background, their family histories, their genealogies. And I don't know if you've um, seen one particular one. It was a guy called Alexander Armstrong. Um, and he looked back, um, all these kind of researchers looked back and looked back and found out that he was actually ended up being related to, Al- to um, Alexander the Great. No, he's Alexander, to William the Conqueror. All the way back, you can see a clear line. Now, a lot of people are interested in their family trees, and if we're really honest, it's probably because deep down we're hoping some branch means that we're related to someone really rich and famous, and we're the last surviving member of the family. <laughs> Let's be honest. No, but I'm just interested in my background. Yeah, right. That's what the secret hope really is. Now, Owen came home from school the other week and said, actually, I need to do my family tree. So we put together one of our family trees. The photos are purposefully small, because they're quite embarrassing. Um, (laughs) So there's my family, um, my kids, then me and my brothers. Yeah, I'm the one with the really bright red hair. Then my mum and her brothers going up to my grandma and her husband. And going up to another couple of generations, right back to the mid-1800s. And I don't even know their their first names. Grandma Curry and Granda Curry and the Macaulays. And we've been told, we've been told that there's a big family secret that will not be revealed until the death of one of the members, this one particular member of the family. It's probably something about where he hid the biscuit barrel, let's be honest. But... (laughs) But it's interesting. You want to know where you come from. What are these interesting secret things? What are our hopes and fears? We dig. We have to dig through information for, um, to find out who we, where we come from and all that. But actually, in, in Jewish tradition, um, the heritage was incredibly important. Hence the whole point of genealogies. Genealogies in the Jewish faith was incredibly important. It told a person where they'd come from, and it told them their heritage, it told them who, who they are. It's their identity and where they're going, their legacy. It was like an early ancient um, example of a CV or a resume. If you want to know who this person is, that's my family line. And it told you something about who the person was. It was incredibly important regarding land and rights and privilege, uh, about purity, about inclusion and position. When the people came back from from exile... um, Ezra writes that one of the things that they did was try to find, as soon as they got to Jerusalem, their family records. And because of those family records, some of the guys who'd hoped to be priests discovered they were not part of the family of Levi and therefore couldn't be priests because of their genealogy. The Jewish writer Hillel, he was proud to trace his lineage back to David. And Josephus, a famous first century historian... At the very beginning of his history, he lays out who he is in his genealogy because it's important, so important that Herod, who was half Jewish and half Edomite, was so embarrassed about his background that he ordered that some records be destroyed so people wouldn't find it out. Genealogies were incredibly important. That's why there's so many in the Old Testament. That's why Luke has one. It traces Jesus' line right back to Adam and why Matthew kicks off the entire thing with this genealogy of names that hopefully he didn't just make up to annoy future readers. <laughs> it's incredibly important he links Jesus with David and with Abraham because it's all about fulfillment. Now, there have been a number of programs over the years in BBC2, Channel 4, Discovery Channel, Secrets of the Bible Code Revealed. Have you ever seen any of these interesting programs? I say interesting with a firm tongue planted in my cheek. Well, they have, they say there's, there's hidden messages in the numbers of the Bible and numbers of the words and the words mean this and that and they come up with a big bunch of bunkum. But did you know in Matthew chapter 1, there is a secret code? Did you know that? That was a great pantomime. Woo! There's a secret code in Matthew chapter 1. I like that. Uh, okay who had the money on Buckner being the one to start the pantomime chance let's have a look at we have the first set here one to six we have David through to Babylon we got the exile through to that and if we have a look carefully in fact there's a clue already given in verse 17 have you a look in the first set there are 14 names okay interesting in the second set there are 14 names now It's a bit simple. What do you think is going to be in the third set? Fourteen names. Now, in the Hebrew language, letters mean numbers and numbers mean letters. And the the number 14 is significant because number 14 spells out this word, D-V-D. This is not proof (laughs) that the Bible predicts the successor to the VHS cassette, okay? DVD, taking out the vowels, DVD screams to the people who could read Hebrew, it screams the word David. 14, 14, 14. It's an acrostic to help people remember it and to scream really loudly this fact, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the anointed one. D-V-D. That's, I don't know my math brilliantly but the first four, 14 is two sets of seven. There's another two sets of seven, another two sets of seven. So Jesus' genealogy, his descendants, are the seventh set of seven. That's really hard to say. Seventh set of seven. If you know your, know your Old Testament, you know that seven is an incredib- incredibly powerful number. It represents a sense of completion. The, um, there was a sabbatical every seven years, and then every seventh, seven years, was the period of jubilee, the period of rest. So Jesus is heralding, the new Jubilee, the new rest. He is the seventh, seventh generation. Secret codes revealed. This is Jesus. He is the anointed one. But that's not the odd thing about this. The odd thing is that there's five women in it. Honestly, this is really odd, not to our sensibilities, but it's odd for Jewish sensibilities. To have a woman in a a lineage is really strange because the lineage should be about male to male because that's where the inheritance goes down. And that's startling enough. But what's even stranger, it's not the women that you would expect to be in there. There's no Sarah. There's no Rebecca. There's no Rachel. There's no Leah. There's no Esther, even though she may not have been related, a queen. There's none of the famous female judges. No, what we've got are some really dubious women. Five dodgy women and surrounded them the men who loved them we're going to look briefly at these five dodgy women first one is tamar her story is in genesis chapter 38 i will try and uh, you know expound it a little bit if you don't know the story of tamar it's a bit embarrassing in places forgive me it's in the bible (laughs) tamar well, Let's start with Judah. Judah is one of Jacob's sons, one of the, the 12 sons of Jacob, and he goes off and he visits a friend in Canaanite territory, and uh, he meets a woman there, a Canaanite woman, and he marries her and he has three children. Now, this is the story of the three children's naming process. So the first child is born, and the wife says, so what are you going to call him? And he goes, Er, great, we'll call him that. His first name is Er, E-R. Okay? And then we go to have a second child, and he goes, What are we going to call this one? And he calls his nan, and he goes, Oh, nan! And went, What are we calling him? So it's Ur and it's Onan. And then the third one he was sure was a girl, because his wife said, What should we call our baby? And he went, Oh, Sheila. So we've got Ur, Onan, and Sheila. Look it up. I promise it's there. Genesis 38. And so Ur is the firstborn, and Judah gets gets a wife for his firstborn. Her name is Tamar, probably a local, in other words, a Canaanite woman. And uh, Ur is a bit of a dodgy character, and he ends up committing lots of sins, and he ends up dying. So Tamar, we talked about Leverite marriage. It was part of the culture. She is then betrothed to the next son, to Onan. Now, Onan, you need to read it. I'm not going to say it out loud. Does some dodgy stuff with Tamar. And he ends up dying as well. So she's widowed twice and no children. Someone's starting to think, there's something maybe a bit wrong with this woman. But Judah, following the rule, says, okay, I've got a third son called Sheila. Don't ask me why I called him a girl's name. <laughs> Sheila. And when he's old enough, you can marry him, but he's not old enough now. So go back to your father, um, mourn for those years with your father. He'll look after you. And then whenever Sheila's old enough, you can have Sheila. She goes, All right. So she goes off to her dad's again, mourns for years. And then she hears locally that Judah has come back to the town and has not promised Sheila to her, hasn't released Sheila to go and marry her. So she's sure that she's been left on the shelf. Judah has acted a bit disgracefully. So she takes off her mourning clothes, her widow's outfit, and she dresses up really provocatively. She dresses up as a prostitute and puts a veil over her face. And she hangs out at the city gate knowing Judah's going to come by. And Judah walks by, and he sees this beautiful woman by the gate, and he fancies a bit. So he says, can I pay you for a bit of, you know, since you're a prostitute? And she says, okay, but let's negotiate the price. So he says, I'll give you a goat, but I haven't got the goat on me. (laughs) He said, okay, well, give me your your seal and your staff as a promise. And he went, all right, here you go. And then they go off, they make love, and she falls pregnant. And then she disappears. The prostitute's gone. Judah goes off. He comes back again a little while later, a few months later, and he says, has anyone seen um, the prostitute, the shrine prostitute? I want to pay him a bill. And they said, there's never been a shrine prostitute here. And he goes, oh no, who's got my seal? Who's got my staff? I'll forget about it and hope it goes away. Then he hears in the grapevine that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who should be in mourning, is pregnant. So she's a prostitute. That's the only reason. So he calls her out and she condemns this prostitute in utter hypocrisy. He condemns this prostitute to die at burning. And Tamar comes out pregnant and she reveals his seal and his staff, and says, these belong to the father of my, ch- my child. And Judah, he uh, goes, fair play, game's up. You're right and I'm wrong. So he allows her to live. He doesn't he take her into his home, but he, she's allowed to keep the children. She has twins, Perez and Zerah. That's the story of Tamar. A bit mucky, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, we move on from Tamar. We have Rahab. We know Rahab. We did Joshua, so we know Rahab. Rahab was in Jericho whenever Joshua and and his his merry men were going to sack the place. He sends in two spies. They go to her hostelry. She's a prostitute, a hostess. And they stay there, um, but but the the authorities find out about it. And they come searching. The Jericho police come knocking at the door. and, And Rahab says, go and hide under the flax on the roof. They won't look there. And she tells them, oh, no, they're not here. They went off that way. And She sends the Jericho police off on a goose chase chase, and says, okay, make a deal. Look after me whenever you come in here because your God is on the move. And so whenever Joshua and the guys sack the city, she is kept safe, her and her family. And she is then incorporated into Israel. And she marries a guy called Salmon, which sounds a bit fishy to me, but, you know. Sorry, I don't know where that came from. Um... Salmon, and her son is a bloke called Boaz. Which brings us to this woman, a woman called Ruth. Really, if you don't know Ruth, you've not been here for the past four weeks. <laughs> Ruth, the story of a Moabite who um, is married to a, couple of Ju- to a Jewish guy who dies and goes with her mother-in-law Naomi back to Israel. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She works hard. They've got no money. So she goes and gleans in the fields, works really hard so much so it stands out that she's working really hard and just happens to be in a field belonging to a guy called Boaz. Just happens? Don't think so. And uh, then one night when the harvest is over, she goes and lies at his feet and does something really controversial and says, will you marry me? Will you put your shelter over me? Will you marry me? And we know that Boaz does a few wheeler-dealer things and ends up marrying her. And she becomes a great-grandmother of a bloke called Dave. And Dave is just a shepherd boy, isn't he? But then he rises up to become king of Israel. And he's out one night when he really should be out with the uh, soldiers doing the thing that kings do. He's having a little wander around in his balcony. He looks down and he sees a beautiful woman bathing naked on her terrace. And he says, I like that. I'm going to send for her. So he sends for this woman. It doesn't matter she's already married. And she's already married to Uriah, one of his close protection squad, who's probably laid his life down or risked his life for David many times. But he, he wants her. So he sleeps with her. She conceives. He's in trouble. Oh, no, the game's up. So let's get Uriah to go back and make love to her. And then it'll be all right. It'll be his son. But he won't do it because he wants to stay with David and be his protector. So David says the only way is to get rid of him. So he arranges for Uriah to die in a massive cover-up. God prophetically um, reveals this to Nathan, the prophet, and he comes and sorts it out. And their first child dies. And then they go and have a second child, a bloke called Solomon. Pretty mucky, isn't it? And then we have another fifth lady, a woman called Mary. And Mary, very familiar story. She's probably a teenager from a small backwater up north, away from the big cities. She's pregnant, but not married. And we have no comprehension how big a scandal this really is. In fact, it was so scandalous that the Jews at the time who wanted to discredit the story of the virgin birth, put around a story that she, um, she was unfaithful with a Roman soldier called Pantera, who is a legionary um, in Caesarea nearby. And so much so that in some documents, some heretical documents, Jesus is known as Jesus Ben Pantera, son of the panther. In trying to dispel this rumor of a virgin birth, it was being discredited. She was a floozy. That's what it was trying to say. When it comes to excuses about getting pregnant and not being married, this is a whopper. God did it. What does that say? She's incredibly disrespectful to the faith. That's pretty heretical as well, isn't it? So she's dubious, not just morally, but maybe she's a bit deranged as well. She could have been put to death. Joseph and her family are guilty by association. That's a mucky situation, isn't it? Five dodgy women. Now, everyone says, we've all got skeletons in the closet. (laughs) Those are five big whoppers of skeletons to have in your closet and they're not hidden. You'd imagine if someone's presenting their CV. When you're doing a CV and a resume, you don't say the things that you're rubbish at. You try and hide those things. Maybe we try and hide some of our backstories from people. Here, they are highlighted for all to see. A bunch of foreigners, a Canaanite, a Jerichoite, a Moabite, a Hittite, a couple of prostitutes, a traitor, an adulteress, and an unmarried mum. So many sermons have been preached on this passage focusing on the sinfulness of these five women as if it was something strange. Have you looked at the blokes that were with them? This is five dodgy women and the men who loved them because they're a mess as well. Think of David, think of Judah. And this is Jesus' heritage. Bono once said, I will edit this because it's a bit of an expletive. He says, Jesus was born in muck and straw. He was born in muck and straw. He was born into a messy world. And his family reflect that. He was born into a cradle of scandal and mire. And with, with all due respect, the, um, the, the idea of God being, Jesus being so holy was a big problem for especially the early church and as it developed a Roman Catholic church. So they couldn't handle initially that Mary could have a sinful Mary could have a pure Jesus. And so the, the terminology behind immaculate conception came about, Mary's immaculate conception. In other words, she was free from the stain of original sin because of Jesus. But actually, I rejoice at the fact that Jesus was born into a mucky family of sinners. I'm surprised by it. I stand amazed at the family line of mess-ups, excluded ones, and the wrong sort because Jesus is not defined by his heritage, but he's influenced by it. He's identified with it. It's a bit like a family who've got some kind of genetic um, hereditary condition and then one child is born that's got natural immunity to it all. The hereditary condition that we all share is sinfulness and Jesus is born. You see, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the idea of purity is really important. And if you're clean, if you touch anything it's unclean, you become unclean. So Jesus, the clean one, the most perfect clean one, is born into an unclean world. And really, that should make him unclean, but it's the opposite. He cleanses the line that he belongs to. He redeems it. Sometimes we can be defined by our, by our familial historical past. We don't have to be. As I said, it's easy to focus on these sinful women, and too many sermons have done that. And it'd be wrong to do so at the exclusion of the dodgy blokes that were associated with them. If their, if their sin was, was not the only reason that they're included in this list, then what is it? Why have these five seemingly dodgy women been included? And we need to focus on the first four for this reason. Now, if we notice, one is a Canaanite. One's an, another one's a Canaanite from Jericho. The other is a Moabite and the other is a Hittite. Remember Bathsheba was married to Uriah who was a Hittite. All of these peoples are at the very least excluded according to the law from the people of Israel. They are in some places actually downright condemned. And Israel should have nothing to do with them. And yet these people are represented in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. We couldn't have any male Gentiles because then Jesus' Jewishness, his Hebrewness, would have been questioned. And there we have lots of Gentile women in this line. And wh- where do we go with that? Well, we look back to a promise made to Abraham right at the beginning. You're going to have really big family. You're going to have a big Christmas list. And all nations will be blessed because you've obeyed me. All nations, not just the Jews. But the Hittites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Edomites, the British, the Iraqi, the Ethiopian, the Afghanistani will be blessed because of your obedience. The DVD screams to people, Jesus is the king of the Jews. These four women say Jesus is the king of the Jews and he's king of the Gentiles too. It's emphasized by the visit of a couple of astronomers who came, who were from pagan lands, Zoroastrians, who came and they visited an infant Jesus, pagan outsiders, and they are included as well. In Jesus' genealogy, we have prostitutes and queens, we have Jews, we have Gentiles, we have men, we have women, we have the good and we have the bad. And Jesus is not ashamed to have them in his lineage in fact, it reminds us of this passage in Galatians. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. You are all in Christ. You belong to Christ. You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Christ, there is none of those Those categories, those classifications so if you or anybody feel excluded by race, gender position, background, mistakes yours and other people's any kind of sense of righteousness or or goodness of your own that you think it doesn't mean you're included, wrong you are not excluded and I would go even further Jesus is not ashamed of you in a passage in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 he says he is not ashamed of the people he's born into, he is not ashamed of you to have you in his lineage. In the same way, he's not ashamed to have the lineage that preceded him. That's the message of Jesus' heritage. But what about his legacy? What about the legacy of, of these women? Who is your descendant? Whose ancestor are you? Any answers? Come on. Who's your descendant? Whose ancestor are you? It's pretty difficult unless you've got one of these devices: a TARDIS or a flux capacitor imbued DeLorean. Unless you go in the future, you'll not know who your ancestors or whose ancestor you're gonna be. And you won't know who your descendants are. It's unknown. We don't know who our descendants will be. But we're not defined by the past, but we are influenced by it. Therefore, you influence your future generations that you're, you're associated with, both familially, genetically, but also relationally in the church as well. You have an influence on a legacy. Great movie with a great quote in Gladiator. What we do in life echoes in eternity. What we do here and now, you may think is completely insignificant, but it has echoes, it has reverberations. It could be that, um, you know, in fact, I was talking to, to one person earlier after the first service, and they said um, he's traced his, lin- his line back maybe to the early 1800s where they were incredibly poor on in both sides of his family, incredibly poor, living hand to mouth just about. And these paternal and, and maternal great-great-great-grandparents pulled them up by their bootstrings, got out of that situation. Because of what they did, it had knock-on effects to be the professional person that he was standing in front of me. What we do in the ordinariness has knock on effects. So, these five women, maybe they're not so bad. Maybe there's some positives that go on. Let's think about Tamar, the pretend prostitute. She has actually been dishonored by Judah. She has kept the line of Judah going whenever he seemed pretty disregarding of it. If you look in Genesis chapter 49, there's a prophecy which is overlooked about Christmas time, but it's really important. Genesis 49. Jacob blesses all his sons and he blesses Judah and he says this, the scepter will never depart from the line of Judah. This is way before kings. This is way before judges. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The line of Judah would have ended if Tamar had not done the dodgy thing that she did because everything, even our mistakes, are redeemable. She had a higher regard for the line of Judah than Judah did. Rahab was a traitor to her, own, to her own people. She chose God and his people over others. She protected spies. She risked her life. She was invited into the people of God so much so that she is mentioned in Hebrews and in James as a hero of the faith, a Jericho prostitute. Ruth, we've mentioned that before, she left her old gods, her old people, her old way of life. She was loyal to Ruth. She was hardworking. She became the mother of Obed. She was a faithful Person. Bathsheba, she was actually probably abused as opposed to being complicit in it all. She lost her husband, she lost her first son, and then later on she's fought for Solomon's right to be king. Whenever one of David's other sons tried to be king, she went to David on his deathbed and said, Please announce Solomon as your heir. And so he announced him as heir, and the line continues unbroken. Then there's Mary. In spite of the risk, the danger, the shame and the possible alienation from family, from, from everyone who she knew, from, she was risking death. She was obedient and willing and humble. I wonder whether this is less uh, roles, a role of scandal more a role of honor. It's a mucky kind of honor. They made choices that affected the future. They were obedient. They had faith. They included risk. They were included. They were redeemed for their mistakes. They were forgiven. They had fresh starts. They had second chances. And that is the good news, isn't it? But they didn't realize it at the time. They weren't following a script going, right, I need to marry him in order that in know, 300 years' time. This needs to happen. They were just making decisions there and then before God, doing the best that they could do. In the ordinariness of the unknown, uh, in the whole global insignificance of it all, they sought to be obedient to God and do something that they didn't know the ramifications that it would have. These dodgy women wrote themselves off, but God wrote them in, literally. They wrote themselves off as insignificant, damaged goods. But God wrote them in. God wrote them in. Maybe they'd said, I'm too different, too female, too bad, too tainted, too spoiled, too far gone, too young maybe, too old perhaps, not experienced enough, not religious enough, not correct, not ordin- I'm too ordinary, I'm very insignificant. Maybe those are the things that we think about ourselves that really, it's only the people who do this, that, and the other thing have some significance, that's a lie. On Wednesday evening, we did um, an activity at the church meeting to sum up in a tweet, a 10-word tweet about what our church is like. Some great answers, but this one from Vicki and Simon, I don't know if it was Simon or vicky but anyway, wrote this, a group of ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the name of God. I know it's more than 10 words, we'll let him off. Ordinary people, I would say doing ordinary things for an extraordinary God but end up being extraordinary. We just don't realize them at the time. These women wrote themselves off. Maybe you do too, but God wants to write you in. Legacy. What is your legacy going to be? I'm not just talking about biological. I'm not talking about whether you've got children or not because all of you, if you're part of this church family or any church family, you have spiritual children. You have an influence. The way you conduct yourself as a Christian has an impact upon people around you, upon children, about young people. They will see what it's like to be a Christian from you. What's your spiritual legacy going to be? You might think, oh, I can't have anything. I'm not that important. I'm not that significant. There's a guy, I'm sure you know the story, a guy called Albert McMahon. And he wanted to go to a big mission thing, a big tent meeting. And so he asked his mate William if he'd drive the, the bus And William, who wasn't a Christian, far from it, drove the bus for him and his mates and had to wait at the back of the tent while the meeting went on. And eventually this this guy, this William, became a Christian. He's latterly known as Billy Graham. Maybe you've heard of him. And there's a guy called Robert Moffat who was a, a, a missionary, a Scottish missionary in Africa. He came back to Scotland to do kind of a uh, a motivational thing to try and get more missionaries to come along. He prepared a, a passage for one meeting on Proverbs 8, verse 4. Expecting a man's meeting. And, and Proverbs 8, verse 4, the line is, Unto you, O men, I call. And he walked into the room and there was a handful of women. So he's a bit disheartened because of the, you know, the way it was at the time. And he preached his message and he went away discouraged. What he didn't realize is over in the corner... At the organ there was a little boy pumping the bellows and that little boy ended up going to africa his name was david livingston and he went off one of the biggest pioneers in mission history there's a woman called rebecca bickerstaff who was just a normal working-class woman living in a working-class house her normal family went to church prayed for her family sent her children to church, to Sunday school, and then they sent their children and their, you know, to church and Sunday school. Some stayed with the faith, some didn't. She prayed for her family all the time. She talked about God all the time. The reason I know this is she was my grandmother, Ruby Bickerstaff, and she prayed for me all the time. It was a delight whenever I could tell her, um, Nanny, I, I'm becoming a minister, before she went to glory. I had a guy called Richard Sloan once, and I said he was a great person who shared his faith with people. And I said, Richard, there are going to be people in heaven who will come up to you and shake you by the hand and say, thank you. And you'll go, I've never met you before. I don't know who you are. He said, I know you don't, but because you spoke to this person, they spoke to that person, and they both became Christians, and that person ended up speaking to me, and now I'm in heaven whereas I wouldn't be before. We don't know the eternal significance of some of those invites to a craft evening or a prospect service or a carol service or an alpha course, we don't know whether we're just gonna, it's going to go blow in the wind or whether there are going to be hundreds of people who come to know Jesus because you took a risk to invite one person to come for a cup of tea somewhere. Maybe you're not so insignificant after all. Don't write yourself off when God wants to write you in. Amen.